Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. These represent where I paused to interact with a student question, but opted to edit out their voice for privacy, you know. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, so thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. All right, welcome to Addictions Class, COU655 here at Multnomah University. My name is Reese Basimio. I'll be your host, professor, taskmaster for the next five weeks or so. And this is a pre-recorded lecture. I have some wonderful colleagues and friends um, watching in the background, um, helping me stay on track a little bit. For now, we will go ahead and get into talking about addictions or compulsions, as we'll say. Um, here are major goals of the course. We will be talking about um, what is addiction, or as, uh, as I'll point out later, um, should we say compulsion, preoccupation, obsession. Uh, spoiler alert, so I don't actually really like the term addiction so much anymore, um, except as sort of a placeholder. Uh, kind of for the same reason, I don't really like the term crazy. I actually think crazy is a very derogatory term these days. Uh, just because the way that of the way that it gets used in society, it's a super big, clunky, imprecise term. And when terms get that big, clunky, and imprecise, they kind of cease to mean anything. And for sure, they cease to mean anything good. So... I find it a lot more useful to talk more specifically about what we're talking about. And <clears throat> per my understanding, uh, talking about addiction has a lot to do more with uh, compulsion, preoccupation, and obsession. Uh, so we'll talk about that. And there's a lot of brain, really, really fun brain science that goes behind that. Uh, we'll talk about how and why some people get addicted and others do not. That's kind of the crux of it all. How to tell if someone has an addiction. Uh, or is an addict, and uh, uh, again, spoiler alert, I, I don't like the term addict either, but, you know, placeholder, we'll, we'll talk about why I don't, and that'll be good. Um, and so that's our diagnosis questions for those of us who will uh, have the wonderful fortune, misfortune to work with insurance companies. Uh, we'll talk about what is recovery, abstinence, harm reduction, sobriety, all of that. Um, how do you do recovery? How does change happen? And uh, how do we how do we help? us who are clinicians and people helpers. And uh, since we're Christians, we'll talk about like, how do we do this work differently because we're Christians? And there's that. Um, so that's where we're going there. Um, so as we are uh, doing class discussions, um, note here, 
you're um, a lot of us come to well counseling in general because of our own growth, our own story, our own uh, pain a lot of the time. And so our, our story is a really huge and important part of why we do what we do. Um, you're certainly welcome to share bits of your story in the class discussions. Uh, you don't have to because that's also your story and you have some volition there. Um, I will probably make copious reference to, to my story when it's appropriate. Um, so uh, very, uh, very briefly, <laughs> Uh, the story of how I got to be an addictions counselor, um, uh, <laughs> kind of by accident, um, not quite, divine providence more precisely. So I started out, actually it's, it's a long journey for me, so when, it, when, it, when I was a wee lad I thought I wanted, well, when I was a very, very wee, I wanted to be an actor, but well, who didn't? Um, then, I, then I wanted to be a, a youth pastor in a, in a Protestant setting, and now I'm an addictions counselor in, uh, in private practice. Um, and that happened, I was doing uh, my, my counseling program and my very first internship was um, at the Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center and um, and is doing a men's residential uh, addictions treatment. And that was, that, was, that was my plunge, very, very much the deep end. And I found it kind of liked it. And I liked the guys and it was fun and it was interesting and Difficult and discouraging for sure, but um, but it was interesting. And then my my first uh, job after college was doing dual diagnosis work. And then there's just the interesting factor just skyrocketed, and uh, and I never looked back. And I've been doing uh, comorbid addictions and sex addiction ever since. Um, right now, I I'm in again I'm in private practice in in Gresham, Oregon, um, in the state of Oregon. I'm a licensed professional counselor, also. A, Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor Level 2 through um, what used to be called ACBO. They've recently changed their acronym, and I haven't checked to see what it changed to. Um, and I'm also uh, two supervision hours short of my uh, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist, CSAT, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist credential through the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Um, so very excited about that one. You'll hear more about that. Um, if we were in person and having a more lively discussion, I would ask, what's your favorite rock band? And then you would answer, like, Queen, ACDC, um, Metallica, Nirvana, I like 21 Pilots. Uh, and then they can say, cool. Now, at the end of this course, we can say we'll have talked about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, because we talk a lot about drugs and even more about sex. So, all right, so jumping into more of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, why talk about addictions? And this is kind of a question too, because not everybody wants to or plans to. Uh, and I've certainly encountered my share of clinicians who, you know, somebody will have like a, an addiction problem, problem and they'll be like, oh, refer out, refer out. I don't do that addiction stuff. Like, oh, you have alcohol. Like you drank a mimosa, like go get treatment. Uh, and, uh, you know, people who say like, oh, they're on meth. They're super dangerous and scary. And like, oh, sex addiction, I don't touch that. And, and then there's those people who don't believe sex addiction exists. Um, We'll talk about that. Um, that's in the lecture bit called the sex positive approach to sex addiction. It it is possible. Uh, I will make that argument. Uh, and then on the other end too, there's there's those addictions counselors who would be like, well, well, I don't do mental health. You know that depression, that bipolar stuff, that borderline niece. I, I don't touch that. You know, you go see so and so. Um, that sort of uh, bifurcating is unhelpful, I'd say. Uh, Granted, there, there, there is always room to specialize and have an area of competency, and, and it is 
it is good, good of course, to, to work within your area of competence and, and with what you're trained for. Uh, however, the two, as we'll see, the mental health and the addiction, they're, they're so intertwined. You really, you really cannot separate them, and you really cannot have one without the other. Um, so being able to at least recognize them, or at least dialogue about them, or at least not have to run away from one when, you're, when you'd rather do the other, um, that, that's kind of the goal here. So anyway, uh, other reasons to treat addictions. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, a high percentage of clients present comorbid occurring disorders. So that's going to, again, going to be a mental health disorder diagnosis as well as an addiction together. Um, I'm not going to do the statistics here. Those will show up in a different slide somewhere, but it's, it's high. It's very high, especially where trauma is. Um, you could say virtually always where there's trauma, there's fire, uh, addiction. Um, where addiction, active addiction, especially where it is present, it is a volatile and actively confounding factor, and I liken it to uh, ignoring addiction is like uh, having an angry, diabolic, uh, very smart, very destructive teenager exiling her to the basement and pretending she's not there and pretending she's not angry and doesn't have access to your furnace and your breaker box and your pipes and all of the things. Uh, it tends to go very badly. Um, I say we should all do addictions work because it is, when it's done well, it's the most holistic work because because it has to be you have to be tending to the body to get the the toxins out you have to be tending to the thoughts you have to be tending to the emotions uh, anytime i've started with sex addiction with somebody it invariably involves other chemical addictions there's always trauma there's always family systems issues that come up if it's a couple there's couples work and betrayal trauma um, spirituality is very easily looped into it and um you know uh, and I say, you know, I was talking with a, with a new guy coming in. He was, like, asking, well, like, are there success stories? Does it work? And, like, can you do it? And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's they're success. But really what you're doing here is you're, you're working to, like, rewrite your instincts. And that's, that's not a quick process. Um, but by virtue of it not being quick, it also gets to be very, 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 very thorough. Addictions work um, demands that the practitioner be highly in tune with their own health and recovery. Uh, you'll find that a lot of people who specialize in addictions, they are themselves in recovery. Um, I'm no exception to that. And uh, to, do it well, to do it well and safely means you have to be really solid in your own recovery, meaning you have to be able to really talk about it and really look at it. You have to be able to do that presence and attunement and practice work. And that just, that means you have to pay attention to it more. I mean, not that you can, not that any counselor can really get away with ignoring their own health. I mean, not for long anyway. But when you're in addictions, you're more, much more active in the thick of things and you really have to, your own stuff comes up a whole lot more. Um, and so, and, and if you're healthy, you'll look at that, you'll think about it, you'll, you'll address it. Um, I'm addressing mine right now by imbibing caffeine because it just, it's the thing. So um, why do addictions work? It's super interesting. It's fun. As discouraging as it can be, it's really fun. It's really interesting. And the stuff you learn, the ways you understand the brain, they're, they're just um, I, I love it. It's, it's super cool, super exciting. Um, and we swear a lot, <laughs> which um, I will work, since this is a Bible college class, I will work to not do that here. Well, I'll use the PG-13 rule and I'll allot myself one F-bomb at some point in the, uh, in the five weeks, um, but only one. Um, <laughs> and, and if this is a, uh, if this is a, I'm kind of kidding here um, about this, kind of not really. 
there, there is a way though that it, it kind of speaks to kind of the, the the flavor and tone of, of kind of the addictions world. It is it is a little bit more more gritty, a little bit more raw, a little bit more. Um, you get the rough edges of society a whole lot more. Uh, I mean, it, again, you can do it super cleanly, super professionally, super safe, uh, and everything. And and there's a lot of ways to relate to people. But um, if you look at kind of the history of the addictions counseling world, uh, it, it's kind of like the like like the bastard child of the counseling world, in that um, just like the mental health counseling, they had to go on this whole arc to become accepted and become credible and become standardized. Uh, addictions counseling has had to do the same thing too, only their process is about 100 years behind. So uh, there's that to consider too. All right, so we're going to start with the parable, which is, this one's a fun one to do, uh, have, a, have a group tear apart sometime, but I'll just read it for you here. So the scorpion and the frog. A scorpion and a frog meet on the bank of a stream, and the scorpion asks the frog to carry him across on his back. And the frog asks, how do I know you won't sting me? And the scorpion says, well, because if I do, I will die too. And the frog is satisfied, and they set out. Midstream, the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog feels the onset of paralysis and starts to sink, knowing they will both drown. And as the water closes over his head, he gasps to the scorpion, why? And the scorpion replies, it's in my nature. Um, we'll do a second parable, this one taken out of more recent pop culture. Uh, so uh, the Flash versus Captain Cold. Uh, toward the end, um, I, I love the Flash. Um, toward the end of season one, uh, the Flash makes a deal with his enemy and rival, Captain Cold, persuading the frigid villain to help him transport a group of dangerous metahumans out of the city. And the Flash appeals to Captain Cold's love of his city and his love of being able to exploit his city. He points out that if the Metas destroy the city, Captain Cold will be left with no city to exploit. And the Flash also agrees to Captain Cold's demands to have his criminal record erased. During the operation, Captain Cold sabotages the plan, releasing the Metas and disabling the Flash. Angrily, the Flash says, You gave me your word! To which Captain Cold replies, It's true, I did, but here's the thing. I'm a criminal, and a liar, and I hurt people, and I rob them. What did you expect me to do, not be what I am? I saw an opportunity to turn things to my advantage, and I did. Who you're really mad at is yourself. So, um, A, what are your thoughts? But I'm not going to actually hear your thoughts, so just keep them to yourselves. Um, but um, I, I picked these uh, out because there's a, a really remarkable way that these capture the... the intense frustration with uh, addiction and compulsion and the very dual nature of a person that that comes out with it um, when a person's in active addiction we see them do horrendous things we see them violate their families violate their moral codes violate their spirituality violate their own bodies and just they, they, we see them just violate just everything um, and there it's very common to hear addicts talk about how they they feel like they're, they're not themselves or they feel like there's this other person in them. And they talk about their, their addict as this other otherness within them, too. And, of course, we who uh, know about like the, the spirit, spirit world and um, the, the spirit and the flesh and the, like, the, the old nature, the new nature, we, we understand this tension as, as, as a spiritual tension. Um, but it's also a chemical one, and it's also a physical one, and it's also a mental and psychological one. And it's very confounding, and it's very confusing. Um, and it can be very easy to 
over-identify the addicted person with the horrendous things that they can do. Not every not every addict does horrendous things, but but some do, and that's 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 very difficult. Um, but that's uh, that that's the reality of what we're working with here too. Uh, I need to research that one a little bit. Um, okay, <clears throat> so questions we're starting off by asking in this uh, in these first couple lectures. So, what is addiction? Uh, why do some people get addicted and others do not? Uh, how does an addict, how does an addicted person change? What must a counselor do? Okay, so that, that's our whole class actually. Models of addiction. Here's where we're gonna start. Um, uh, there's, it's very complicated. So there's a lot of different ways of understanding what addiction is. As we will go through, uh, I'm going to definitely like some models more than others, and. Um, that is that. So why does this sort of theory matter? Well, uh, thoughts have consequences, beliefs dictate policy and protocol. Uh, if you you know believe that the problem that the person is responsible for their own choices uh, or versus you believe they're overcome by something, you know that's going to impact like what you think the, the right solution should be. Um, and ultimately, how you see a person is how you'll treat them. Like, if you see a person as a criminal, you're going to treat them like a criminal. And if you see them as a wounded person, you're going to treat them like a wounded person. Uh, and those are generally different, which is sad because criminals are all wounded people. Um, and we should be able to see them that way. So, okay, I'm almost on the verge of amazing myself, which is dangerous because that's pride and we're... Technology is concerned, me and pride don't get along very well. Okay, so my take on addictions and uh, understanding how, how they work. Uh, there, there, there's a couple, couple major components to consider when we consider um, what, what, what's going on with, with an addiction. Major components of addiction. So first, there, we're definitely going to want to consider in this house of addiction. So there's the addicted person. And when, when we consider the addicted person, we can consider things like genetics, um, like volition and responsibility can maybe consider trauma uh, and just like stuff like the emotional makeup of the person their their psychology and, and there's there's a whole lot to consider there uh, in in just who the, who the person is so that that that's one important point uh, we're gonna also want to consider um, this is my that's a crack pipe it's supposed to be a crack pipe or just tobacco pipe um, something smoke okay <clears throat> um there's the thing and i've, I've drawn i've drawn uh, a drug reference there but really we're going to be talking about drugs and alcohol sex and gambling food internet work exercise religion uh there, there's a whole lot of things uh, you know people talk about being a workaholic or a chocolateaholic or a facebookaholic well they should be talking about facebookaholics because my goodness people you're all obsessed out there ah. <laughs> um Anyway, um, you know, we can, their emotions, strong heightened emotion states can be here too, relationships, absolutely. So there's, 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 there's the, the, the person and then there's, there's the thing that they do. But not, not every, not every person who, who drinks alcohol, for example, is an alcoholic. Um, we can say, so for example, like my seven-year-old uh, has wine every week at Holy Communion at church in that particular context. Uh, you know, that's a lot different than the person who they wake up and they drink alcohol, they drink cheap beer 
before they do anything else and they drink all day until they pass out at night. Um, there's a difference there. What's the difference? It's, it's the same substance. It's the same alcohol. Um, but the, the, the major, major differences are, we could say, the context and just, you know, a house speaks of home, family, the place, and family systems. That, that's a huge bit of context, too. By context and environment, we could also think society and culture and the world around us. Uh, in a highly stressful world, there's a lot of reasons to want to addict to something and escape. Um, and you know, but the the fun the fun the fun topic for the, the the story writers is like, well, what about in an idyllic world? Where's paradise? Would people still addict? And probably because human nature, you know, different tangent. Uh, the main thing we we're going to want to consider though is here, the reason why the person is doing the thing in the place that they do it and the relationship that they have between the thing. Uh, and again, this is the main difference. This is the main difference between uh, why, you know, alcohol can be Holy Communion, the blood of Christ versus like, this is what I do to drink away my sorrows and I destroy my life while I'm at it. Um, it's the it's the reason and the relationship. So. And yes, uh, there's a note here about early childhood development as being a major factor. Absolutely, it is. We're going to talk about the adverse childhood experiences exam at some point in here too, which y'all should take. It will be provided. Okay, so we're going to work through different models that go over those different parts. And we'll start with part one, something is wrong with the person. So there's some models that talk about that. So... Up at the top, uh, there's uh, the, the moral model, or sometimes called the criminal model. So I just mentioned them both here. Essentially, what it says is that uh, the alcoholic is a degenerate, and alcoholism is a moral weakness. Um, there's going to be a lot of references to alcohol, uh, kind of, for again, for point of reference. A lot of these studies started with alcohol, because alcohol has kind of been in the spotlight the longest. Um, in some of the readings I did over this, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about cocaine and opium also. Uh, when we think about like, like the war on drugs, it's the war on drugs. Uh, there hasn't been a war on sex or a war on food uh, or a war on the internet, although probably there should be. Um, well, actually, actually, no. I just, I'm going to contradict myself because um, I'm going to come out and say the war on drugs was bad and didn't work. Um, but anyway, so in this model, uh, the problem is uh, the addict, the person, because they do the criminal behavior. And the very pertinent question is, which comes first, the, the addiction or the behavior? Uh, is it that um, the person is inherently criminal and so they do criminal things and, um, and they, that, that fuels an addiction? Or is it that they, they have an addiction that just causes their life to spiral and then they end up doing a lot of criminal things because they lose control? Uh, in this model, uh, the solution is punishment because there is not really any concept of a cure. Uh, and our punishment of choice tends to be incarceration, um, particularly if you're black, and there's no hiding that. The uh, incarceration system we have in America is extremely racist and uh, disproportionately houses uh, or imprisons uh, people of color, especially men of color. Um, and other than in incarceration, we could say uh, greater accountability and mandated treatment might be good ideas. Um, but we just like to incarcerate people. So uh, addiction itself is, we would say it's criminal, it's illegal, usually violent behavior. 
and the, the, the idea is that chronic offending is an autonomous person's choice. The, the variation here, so <laughs> here's where we also discover that you know truth is not absolute, truth is a matter of marketing, and at one point, uh, the marketing was that uh, it's those dangerous cocaine addicts, it's those dangerous uh, marijuana addicts, especially those blacks and those Mexicans, um, because they're going to come rape your women and steal all your stuff and ever and whatever. And so that was that was the rhetoric back in the day, and so and that's just been fueled into this idea that uh, people who use drugs become violent. Do they really? Um, so yeah, there there is such thing as, as the drunken rage. People under the influence of alcohol have been known to rage and break things. Uh, someone who's under the influence of methamphetamines and inactive psychosis, they could get kind of sketchy for sure. They can be very unpredictable. Uh, opiates make you sleep. Uh, you know, cocaine just kind of chills you out, calms you down. Uh, hallucinogens make you just go into your own head. Um, you know, and and this isn't even talking about things like sex and porn, uh, although violence and sex they, they they go together also. So so already we're beginning to see how this model has a very incomplete, uh, incomplete uh, and very imbalanced view of the problem. Within this model of what addiction is, we'd say the person himself, themselves, the person himself herself, grammar, is deviant. They're responsible both for acquiring and solving their own problem. Uh, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, pros of the criminal model, uh, it keeps the clinician safe because they're, they're, there's the reality. People in their addictions, they, they do lie and they do do illegal things and they have done violent things. So if you, if you, look, at it, if you look at a person that way, then you can say, okay, they're, they're a criminal. I'm going to set appropriate boundaries and just keep my distance. And I have like the legal system to back me up and I'm always right. And... If they have a problem with something, there's the door, and it's really, really easy to keep yourself safe by objectifying and condemning the, the, the addicted person. So, we could call that a pro, if we want to. I don't think we should, but, you know. Cons. <laughs> uh, so, inconsistent application and chronic lack of funds. So, uh, and it just very difficult to, to do. Uh, if, if, the, if the solution for all uh, drug use, all drug possession is uh, incarceration. I mean, it's really difficult to actually apply and enforce that, and then it's just very expensive, uh, and um, and the government's always running out of money for these sorts of things. So um, <clears throat> high potential for abuse of power, which supports other systemic oppression, such as racism, um, subjective interpretation of eligibility for drug courts. We'll talk a bit about drug courts. Uh, also, does not fully factor in mental states. Uh, doesn't really recognize that um, people aren't just born criminals. People don't, and you know, people don't just wake up one day and decide I'm going to go. Oh, I almost dropped my f bomb there. People don't just wake up one day and say I want to go mess up my life. You know, that comes out of a context. It comes out of a, a very painful context. And uh, just saying, oh, they're using drugs, they're criminals, they're deviant, they're lesser than, you know, that, that doesn't factor in the whole story, and that, that, that's a problem. Uh, clinical implications. Um, the criminal model lends itself toward a lot of animosity and hostility. It has a very punitive versus therapeutic attitude. So, again, depending on what industry you want to be in, you know, if you want to be... Um, uh, 
how do I say this in a humanizing, respectful way toward everyone? I guess if you want to, if so, if you want to do counseling work, if you want to do work that is geared around healing and transformation and nurture, then I'm going to say a model like this does not work because it, you know, in a model like this, you're always at odds with the other person. You're always in a in a power up over situation and you're always at a distance from them you can't get close it's not safe to get close and then they wouldn't receive it anyway so it doesn't really work uh spiritual integration points to consider um so what is a person's responsibility in any given thing and there's um and we can think about you know scriptural passages that talk about like you know should children be held guilty for the sins of the fathers and if I remember right, I think the answer is no, um, except in a few cases where such as like like the sin. Well, well, no, no, no. It goes this way. I think like um, like like a kid on his own is not responsible for for the sins of his father. Um, however, the sins of the father do uh, reap repercussions. You know, three and four generations down. And so there's, uh, for example, the uh, story of of Achan in the uh, Old Testament book of Joshua. Um, <clears throat> um, he uh, he disobeyed God. He took something he wasn't supposed to, and for that sin, him and his whole family uh, were executed. And and there there's a lot of stories like that where um, you know one person one person's sin has radical ripples throughout throughout generations. Or we could look at uh, in the life of King David. You know he's he's a man after God's own heart, you know, ancestor of Christ. He, he commits murder and adultery, and his whole life devolves into chaos after that. You know, he's still beloved of God. He's still a man after God's own heart, and he's saved through his weeping and repentance, but he still has a hell of a lot of chaos in his life. Uh, so there, there's that. Um, and to balance out the despair with the hope, there are also, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we mention family systems, um, as much as sins and acting out and trauma are... Um, leak through the generations, so do recovery, so do redemption and sanctification. And we can think, you know, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we meet Cornelius, who, he's a Roman, he, he encounters Christ, he pursues his salvation, and when he is saved, his whole household is saved with him. And so his restorative, redemptive choice also has impacts throughout the, the generations. So that's important, and that's exciting, too. Um... So it's important to consider um, mercy versus justice. Uh, so the thing, so the thing about justice, and in this, uh, this is an interesting thing to consider uh, as we're considering racial tensions these days too. So if I if I slap you, which I'm across the screen, so I can't do that. Um, if I slap you, that's bad. Um, if uh, so, it's it's if I keep slapping you, that's really bad, and it's a little good if I stop slapping you. If you slap me back, we could say that's fair. I slapped you, you can slap me. Uh, but it's not good, because it's not good to slap people. Um, and so justice, while fair, is not always good, and it's not actually conducive to healing. It's just good for like evening things out a little bit. If we want real healing, there needs to be mercy. Someone who says, oh, you slapped me, I'm not going to slap you back. I will maybe like take some space from you, but I'm not going to slap you. So, uh, the criminal model also puts clinicians in the tenuous position of having to judge, which, A, we're not trained for. We're not legal judges. Uh, and also, as Christians, this is a tenuous spot for us to be in anyway, because 
pride and a whole bunch of other things. So all that to say, um, the criminal model, probably not the best approach for a counselor to take to addictions. Um, okay. So there's a lot of comments that are on the slides, which will be posted. Um, here's an anecdote um, in illustrating how, how this is illustrated. So, so I was reading the book, audio booking the book, Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, and it's documenting the first and last days of the drug war. And it recounts the stories of two, two, two woman addicts back in the day, you know, two singers, um, Billie Holiday, Judy Garland, um, one black, one white, um, you know, the, the, the black woman, uh, well, well, the, the way that Hari recounts the story is, you know, when, when, when Judy Garland was going through her addictions, I mean, I mean, it eventually killed her, but like she received care, she received support, she received encouragement to try this or that, you know, a cure, you know, they didn't want to disrupt her career, that sort of thing. Uh, and the way he recounts the story, the very same voices were interacting with Billie Holiday by arresting her, blaming her, you know, stalking her, harassing her, destroying her career, uh, you know, assaulting her and things like that. So, you know, uh, the, war, the war on drugs, it's, it's essentially an arm of racism. So, because I want to talk a little bit about the war on drugs. The history about this is really fun. And I had, I had to stop myself. I was falling into an obsessive spiral over the history because I like history. Um, and the history of the war on drugs is super, super fascinating. Ah, there's a question about um, if Adamson affects us all. Uh, and yes, so there, there is a slide about that coming up. So stay tuned. We're going to talk about original versus ancestral sin briefly coming up. Um, so close cousin to the, the, the uh, criminal model, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll stop at this one for, for, for today because, uh, well, or maybe we'll go on. I'm having fun. Um, so the temperance model. The temperance model is the one that says certain substances and behaviors cause addiction. And in this one, we'd say the problem is the, problem is the drug itself. The problem is alcohol. The problem is weed. The problem is pornography. The problem is these things that are themselves inherently addictive and evil. And I mean, you could think uh, that has some interesting theological implications too, saying um, the thing itself is cursed, you know, irredeemable. And can we fairly say that about anything? Can we, can we fairly say that about anyone? Um, can we fairly say of something that, you know, God made and said, you know, it, it's good that no, now it is inherently bad. Certainly, and, and, I, and I know that's going to be different talking about people than talking about the, the, the creation. Um, and, and we're definitely not negating that uh, sin has ravaged a lot of things. Things are broken. Things are fallen. <laughs> There's a lot of not good. There, there is a lot of evil in the world. Um, but part of, part of where this breaks down is to say, okay, so, so we could say, you know, alcohol. Uh, yeah, there's, there, it, I mean, it is, it's alcohol. It's a toxin. Um, but there's also some, some beautiful things about it and some beautiful experiences related to it. And I mean, alcohol in particular, there's a lot of ways that, I mean, especially in the Bible, I mean, the Bible speaks pretty, pretty strongly against like drunkenness in particular, but, um, but wine is, is, is a metaphor for joy and connection and like wine, wine becomes the body that becomes the blood of Christ. And so there's, there's, uh, there'd be, it'd be really interesting to say, yeah, wine is, Alcohol is evil in all, all situations. Uh, and then we get into things like, like food or like sex, which 
absolutely can be abused and often are, and they are related to, to, to the passions which have to be mastered. Um, but they're also part of us. They're also a thing that God has created in us. And so can we, can we really fairly say that these things themselves are the evil thing? And, um, and I'll, and, and then like, if we can say, yeah, like the pro like the problem is, the problem is the thing, it's the object, it's the item, what that ends up doing to their personal responsibility dynamic is saying the problem's out there somewhere. It's not with me. I'm not the problem. I'm the victim in the situation. Uh, and that, uh, that throws a whole different spin on, on responsibility and, and how we'd approach that. Uh, so we'd say within the temperance model, um, if the problem is the drugs, then the solution is society, in particular the government. Kind of, maybe. Uh, we, but we say society, aka the, the government, is responsible to protect its people from all of the things. Um, through policy, through implementing this or that uh, reform, through programs, through agencies. Uh, and ultimately the solution is prevention through limiting access. So, And that's that, that one's particularly talking about uh, chemicals. Uh, and this is also a major thing that's fueled the, 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 the war on drugs, uh, where we'd say the, the, the idea was we just have to get all of the drugs away from us altogether everywhere. Uh, and so then it becomes um, uh, what, what do we do to get the drugs out of people's hands, to get the drug dealers off the streets, to punish people, to keep, keep them away from drugs. That's hide away from the drug dealers, shelter our kids, close the borders, build a wall, um, all of these things. And what that ends up doing, and um, and again, Johan Hari, he, he talks about a lot of this in, in his book, you know, Chasing the Scream. He talks about how the, the war on drugs ends up becoming the war for drugs because, uh, I mean, you, you criminalize addiction and then, uh, and then all, of the, all of the stuff that happens with drugs becomes the... The domain of the drug lords, and then they're they're running the show. And I, I know I don't know. Well, <laughs> I don't really want that for uh, my society. Um, different than if <laughs> different than if the government uh, were to to legalize drugs, and then the government would be regulating things. Which I don't know. Depending on politics, may or may not actually be better. One of my favorite memes of all times, though, was was this, this two lines of saying, "Here, here, here's how to uh, here's how to win the war on drugs: A, legalize all drugs; B, require that all drugs be purchased through Comcast." Okay, Temperance model says addiction is caused by mere exposure to addictive substances or activities, and that the things are dangerous for everyone in all situations, ever, ever, ever. Well, we'll come back to that statement. Uh, that it, it breaks down pretty quickly in, in some cases. Um, but the idea is that the, the, the person here is in danger of mere exposure. And, and that would go for, for drugs. Uh, I'd say too, and this is a little bit more particular for, for more religious circles, but for, for pornography too, the idea is like, you know, don't let that boy and girl in a room together. They're going to m procreate right away. And like, or like, you know, don't let them see like the slightest bit of skin anywhere away from the pools, away from the movies, or else they're going to become fornicators. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm being, I'm being goofy, exaggerated, dramatic, but like, there's kind of that attitude to this idea of like, if we just keep our kids away from everything, they're going to grow up like golden, virtuous children. Um, like having been one of those golden, virtuous children who later like did a bunch of stuff. I'm like, <laughs> no. 
pros. So, so again, pro, you know, we, we, we get to pass the buck. The responsibility is out there somewhere. It's not us. And we don't really have to look at ourselves or do any work. So uh, the cons of this model, uh, the person is seen as vulnerable, weak, deviant, and it creates a preoccupation with the thing we're trying to avoid uh, while missing the actual humanistic experience, the human experience of addiction. And it tends to be very behavioristic and legalistic because it becomes all about like, what are the, what are the very particular guidelines, guidelines I can set around? How do I avoid the thing? Main con to this model is that it just doesn't work. Clinical implications, it ends up placing a very high emphasis on compliance, even at the expense of recovery. Um, that's something that shows up by a, a lot more, I think, in like, like the inpatient facilities, especially if there's like a really kind of like militaristic like feel to it of like, you know, show up, you know, be in class like on time, on time, on time, which punctuality is good. But when they say, you know, you're two minute, you're, you're one minute late, we're locking the doors, you can't come in. You know, it's not our problem if you're now going to get a parole violation. You know, you should have been here one minute ago. Uh, you know, it just doesn't factor in like the whole context of a person's life. So spiritual integrations points to consider. It, this is the on the other hand point. You know, some things are bad for us, which is the reality. Like we could say, yeah, gluttony is bad for us. It's bad for the body. It's bad for the soul. And we could say, yeah, like some of these chemicals that, and especially some of the, like the more like synthetic ones, they're really bad for us. And that's a truth. That's a really big truth. And so, yeah, we should want to avoid exposing ourselves to things that are bad for us. So that, that, that is a truth. And that has to be factored into. Um, I think it's just important to say that, um, to be a fully healthy person, I will need to do more than just avoid evil. I have to also seek good. So that's what we'll say about that. All right, for a few minutes, let's talk a bit about history because it's fun. Um, so, so when we talk about, um, so when we talk about the war on drugs, so we're, uh, or the temperance model, here we can reference, so there's, there, there's a prohibition that was very famous um, uh, illegalizing alcohol. Uh, there's the war on drugs. Um, that was, those are also, that was prohibition 1920 to 1933, um, created by the 18th amendment. Um, the Harrison act comes up a lot. Uh, so this was the, the first occasion of regulations around the sale of cocaine, um, cocaine and opiates. Um, but here, but this was, this was, this particular act, is sometimes marked as the beginning of the criminalization of drug users is because um, before this, um, things like opiates and cocaine, they were over-the-counter medications, and which to our sensibilities might sound very terrible. It might sound very terrible to say, to say, oh, your baby's teething and crying and fussy? Give them cocaine. Like, that, that kind of sounds horrible, um, but 100, 120 years ago, that, that was more the norm, and again, depending on who you listen to, was not leading to addiction. Uh, I mean, granted, wasn't healthy either, but like, um, but there, there, there's a difference between uh, somebody who does an unhealthy thing and a thing who be, and, uh, and a person who becomes what we understand as the, the addict, the addicted person who has lost all control over their life. And, um, and again, um, depending on who you listen to, prior to drugs being criminalized, people were using drugs, but they, they weren't, uh, the high, high majority of them were not addicts. They were just users. Um, and, and we'll talk a little, and, and uh, when we talk about diagnosis, we'll talk about how to mark the difference 
between an addict and a user, um, but um, but a lot of people were, were using and were using in very controlled manners. Uh, kind of the way that today, what it seems to be is a lot of people use marijuana in a way that is kind of controlled and like kind of safe. And we could argue back and forth a lot about whether or not it's actually healthy or helpful, but, but what we can observe is that by and large, a lot of people are able to use it in controlled doses. So that observation would seem to, to contradict the statement that some things like, like weed are, are inherently addictive all by themselves. Um, so the war on drugs in particular, very interesting, uh, had its origins with the, the Harrison Act. It was officially declared by President Nixon in 1971. Um, and as we mentioned, it's been from the beginning, it's been closely tied with all of the issues facing the prison systems today. And again, very regrettably, uh, largely targeting um, people of color and Latinos. Um, and and um, for disproportionate things too, like, um, and, and I mean, kind of, kind of the you know the, the the way it goes is you know you have like have a have a have a have a black man and a white man who both was caught with possession of like they say you know a small amount of like you know heroin or cocaine or back in the day, marijuana, you know, uh, you know, white guy might get a bit of parole, probation, very short sentence. Um, you know, the, the black man might become a fel- might be, might be given a felony. And that, th- those are marks that don't go away. Like once you get in the system, you can't get out of it. You can't get those marks off of you. Uh, and I mean, I mean, it's maybe worse if you get charged, convicted as a sex offender, but like, like felonies in our system, they, they, they don't go away. And so, you know, once you get a huge charge like that for a kind of like small offense, like you can't get funding for anything, you can't get loans, you can't get credit, you can't get jobs. And so you kind of create this second class person just by virtue of what they're not able to do anymore because they've got this huge charge for this really small offense. And so what the deal is going on there? Um, anyway, and again, uh, the war on drugs, it creates this very punitive nature of, of drug policies um, that ultimately discourages people from seeking help. Like, I mean, if, if, you, if, you know, if, if you knew you had kind of a problem, but you knew as soon as you said anything, you're going to lose your job, you're going to get stigmatized, you're going to get punished, you might go to jail. I mean, why would you come forward with that? You wouldn't. Most people wouldn't. They would hold it inside until they couldn't, until the life actually exploded. And then all of the, those stuff would happen anyway. So it's just, it's just not good. Uh, war on drugs is expensive and, you know, we already got financial problems. Um, and the other thing too, I mean, you, you look at, uh, you know, the studies and the history and everything, um, has the war on drugs actually reduced drug use? Uh, no, people have always used drugs. People will always use drugs, um, until the end of time. And, <laughs> uh, they'll just find creative ways to do it in secret. And the secretive ways are usually the more dangerous. So, um, one writer said the war on drugs is ultimately a war between the hijacked reward pathways that push the person to want to use and the frontal lobes, which try to keep the beast at bay. And that is the essence of addiction. Uh, so that's a, that, that's a reference to the, the disease model of addiction, which we're going to cut into next time because we're coming up on about an hour of lecture here. And I want to be mindful of everyone's time here. Um, let me <coughs> troll the comments, see if there's anything I need to... All right, so so that's where we're at 
there. Uh, so we've talked about two major models here. I'll throw in one more comment. Okay, so uh, so revisiting the temperance model. So original. So a lot of times the temperance model is talking about talking about drugs and talking about things like prohibition, like the war on drugs. Um, a more a more modern phenomenon I'm gonna say is this whole uh, trend of accountability software. So like Covenant Eyes, Triple X, Q Studio, uh, and these are uh, for the listener who doesn't know these are uh, softwares that uh, either filter your internet or block you from certain sites or send a report of all your web activity to a designated person. And it's used by people who have uh, challenges with uh, internet use, particularly pornography. Uh, or using you know chat chat rooms and dating apps to engage in sexual acting out, and um, it's a tool that's often used. And again, in it in its context and used rightly, any tool has a given amount of value. So I'm not going to say it's bad. I'm not going to say the so- the software is bad or useless. What I have seen though is I have seen some cultures and. Um, I have seen some some cultures, some some church cultures for sure, and some some recovery cultures where uh, recovery begins and ends with getting the right software, and all of the focus begin gets becomes on well, can I get these software bits in place? Can I get these blockers in place? You know, which software is best? Which one do you use? Well, my software is better than yours because mine takes screenshots. Uh, you know, and then there's a whole I mean, there's the related question of like who should be the accountability partner, and that that's a that's a different problem. But um, the idea, though, is kind of this same idea that um, it's the, the problem was with the, with the porn or the problem was with the Internet and the problem is out there. And if I can just keep myself from the Internet, then, then I'll be fine. Um, and now there, there there is some value to this. Um, like like there will be some like if, if the per- comparing to to the person whose drug of choice is alcohol. Uh, at some point, the person needs to be removed from alcohol, and that's why we would send them to detox or send them to a treatment center to get a really like enforced and well-supported break from everything. Because at some point, your body and your mind just need to clean themselves. Uh, so, for for that purpose, something like software can be good if that's what it takes to to make the break. Um, and parenthetically, with that, uh, <laughs> most. Uh, the, the very common experience is that a high majority of people who use software also find out loopholes to get around it. So I would say if, if you're going to go that route of just removing access, better to remove your internet altogether, um, which is a costly move, very disruptive. But recovery is disruptive. And guess what? Like acting out is even more disruptive. So you could uh, let the stuff, you could let that teenager stay in your basement and uh, mess things up and uh, let your life blow up, or you can purposefully disrupt it for a little bit and take a and force break maybe just from all internet for a little bit and uh, and move on from there. Um, but, but, but again, like the, the, the limits to this, though, are, 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 pr- are pretty, pretty clear then. Um, you, you would use something like software or like a break from the internet to, to give yourself that break so your mind can rest, so your emotions can re-regulate, so your body can go through withdrawals. Um, but, but the problem is not out there. The problem is within. The problem is the which we'll find out. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make the case that addiction is 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 essentially a trauma reaction. The problem is the pain that you carry inside, 
and the problems that you have connecting with people. And, and they're, usually, they're usually problems that have been inflicted on you by others. Um, and so those are the things that need to be addressed. And there's no software that will do that. There's no software that will actually heal you as a person or that will fix your relationships or connect you to other people. Um, the, the best it will do would be to delay your acting out process long enough for you to reach out to someone else if you do that with that. Um, so, so that's my rant about software. I mean, software is great. I mean, if it's helpful for you, use it. And it is helpful for a lot of people on a limited basis. Uh, my problem, like I said, is when a person's attitude is that recovery begins and ends with getting the right software. If that's the case, I'm going to say, hey, there's some other denial structures and avoidance patterns going on, and we need to uh, do some more work. Oh, yeah. Sorry. One more slide. Can't resist. Okay. So there's this idea of the temperance model. It's kind of re refuted by, by a couple of things. So, so there's the now very famous uh, Rat Park study, um, which has been popularized in uh, Johan Hari's video, what was it called? Like everything, you know, what did he call it? Everything you need to know about addiction is wrong or something like that. The idea, the idea, the idea he talks about was, you know, these, these rats in miserable cages who become addicted to cocaine and like use it to death uh, versus, you know, rats in rat park where they have all of the entertainment and lots of food and other rats and they get to basically have an abundant life and they, they have the free option to, to use cocaine, but they just don't because they have a life to live instead. And the idea is that like the opposite of addiction is connection, which I think makes a lot of sense. And, and I think there's a lot to that. Um, the other anecdote that's often referred to is, uh, you know, you know, uh, soldiers in the Vietnam War, uh, many of which became addicted to heroin in some form or another while they were there. And so the story goes, many of which upon returning to, to, the, to the States, those who could return to families who welcomed them back no longer used, not addictively anyway. Um, I mean, there were other problems, I'm sure, too. But, um, but by and large, um, the, the addiction didn't stick. Like the, this, this thing, and, 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 and heroin in particular is kind of, kind of, the, kind of the mother, mother of all drugs in that um, it's anecdotally regarded as like the one where like you're addicted on your first try because it's just so euphoric and wonderful. Um, uh, I, I did have one guy who, he, I mean, his acting out was primarily with uh, alcohol and, uh, you know, drinking to oblivion and everything. And, and he, he recounted as like the one time he did heroin was like the best moment of his life. And he was like, it, because it was the best thing, I, could knew, I knew I could never do it again because he wouldn't stop. Anyway, but, but there is this, this kind of ethos around heroin in particular that like once you start, you can't stop, which for some people is true. But I think what we'll discover is the reason is not because the heroin is so heroiny; it's because of the person. Uh, this idea of the temperance model, I think, also is refuted by everyone who did every drug once or twice in college, and this is a lot of us. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people did a lot of stuff in in their in their teens and twenties, and a lot of people stopped most of it uh, when they grew up and got jobs or had families. It's because, and again, we'll talk about like then the levels of addiction and we'll talk about like experimentation, recreation and habituation and things. But um, using a thing does not mean you're going to be addicted to, to a thing. Uh, using a thing is not, using these things is not healthy. It's not safe. It's not good. We could, we, we could maybe say that. Um, 
or we could refute that too because it's like we could say but you're exploring and you're empowering and you're doing necessary developmental stuff okay we could say that too but um but um but the high percentage of people who have tried every drug a few times when they're young and then maybe landed on like one or two or didn't do any at all um the you know that 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 says something that says like again the problem is not the drugs itself there the problem is something else and and again when we talk about the trauma model we're, we're going to talk about what that is so all that to say so that's going to conclude uh lecture one for uh addictions class here at Multnomah with uh, Reese Basimio and we'll be back uh another time with lecture two where we'll uh, continue talking about more more models. We'll want to be hitting uh, the disease model. We'll hit that one next, and that that's the the one of the other really major ones. And eventually, we'll work our way to the uh, diathesis stress theory, the biopsychosocial model. We'll talk about like a spiritual model of addiction, and um, my favorite, the uh, trauma dissociation model, the intimacy disorder, and uh, addiction as compulsion. So. Stay tuned, and thanks for being here. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music